Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And now, here's Carrie. Let's bow our heads before our holy God. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the message this morning will fill our hearts with the wonder of your love towards us. We thank you for the gift of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus has done it all, and all that is required of us is to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning really begins at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out on the apostles and perhaps other saints. Last week, we learned that Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, healed a man that had been crippled from birth in the name of Jesus. And then they preached the gospel to the crowd at the temple. And this is where our story continues in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Verses 1 to 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees opposed them. They were very disturbed because Peter and John were teaching and preaching the resurrection of the dead by the authority of Jesus. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, as it was already evening. Many of the people who heard the word believed and the number of people came to about 5,000. The motive of the boldness of the apostles was the resurrection. The experience of the empty tomb, now maximized by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave them a message and a mission. What had happened to them, they wanted to happen through them to everyone. Rebellious humanity thought it had the final word at Calvary, only to find out that God had the last word on Easter morning. I am the resurrection and the life. The person who believes in me will live, even if they die, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 11, verse 25 to 26. The apostles remembered and they believed. For the religious leaders of this time, resurrection and revolution were synonymous. Both spelled disturbance for those who desperately wanted to keep things as they were. Peter forcefully preached the message that Christ, whom the Jews had crucified, had been resurrected and was alive with them through the Holy Spirit, continuing his miraculous ministry through the apostles. And the Sadducees had Peter and John put in custody overnight. Verses 5 to 12. It turned out that on the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the record keepers collected together at Jerusalem. Along with them was Annas, the high priest, (coughs) Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and every last person of the high priest's family. They sat Peter and John down in front of them. Then they questioned them. By whose power 
or authority have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, are we today being judged on the grounds that we did a good deed to a sick person because of the way in which he was rescued and preserved? Well then, let it be known to you and all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, the anointed one of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from among the dead, by Jesus, this person stands here in front of you, restored to his original position. Jesus is the stone which was treated with contempt by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is by no one else but him. We must be saved by this name and by no other. There is no other name under heaven which has been given to people by which we can be saved. <clears throat> the drama of this scene intensifies as we feel the rage of Annas and Caiaphas. They had assumed that they had dealt with Jesus and his followers once and for all when they had manipulated the Sanhedrin and convinced Pilate to assure the Galileans' crucifixion. And here were two of Jesus' disciples who were claiming that he was alive, preaching the resurrection through him and performing miracles in his name. All the fear and hatred Annas and his family had, had felt for Jesus was now focused in hurricane force on Peter and John. The Sanhedrin had rejected Jesus as the true Messiah. They had finally convinced the masses that Jesus was a fraud, so that the masses cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. They knew that Jesus had promised he would rise from the dead, and that this would be the sign which would prove he was who he claimed to be. They had been unable to satisfactorily explain the empty tomb of Jesus. And now they couldn't explain the healing of the lame man in Jesus' name. For the disciples to teach a resurrection from the dead through Jesus was to teach that the Jewish leaders had been wrong, dead wrong. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to them. The name of Jesus was the secret of the boldness of the apostles. Jesus came in the name of the Lord, and he sent his disciples out to preach and heal in his name. To speak or act in the name of another was to invoke his presence and power. Now Peter begins to soar in his eloquent, impelling witness. He wants no mistake as to what name healed the lame man. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the same Jesus whom the Sanhedrin had crucified. Peter actually accused the leaders of the death of Jesus. Then he went on to make it very clear that this Jesus was none other than the Messiah. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophets of old. And the powerful name of Jesus is available to us today. In the name of Christ, we have access to the heart of God and an assurance of his availability in the eminence and intimacy of the Holy Spirit.
Boldness is a result of the conviction, not, yet, not just that Jesus saves, but only Jesus saves. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we are reconciled to God. The cross was a one-time, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. When we accept his atoning death for our sin, we are forgiven and set free of guilt and self-condemnation. We are born again, beginning life anew as a love and forgiven child of God. And no other religion or cult can promise that. We need Peter's boldness to preach and teach and then model our living that there is no other way. In Peter's remarkable statement, he brushed aside nationalism, the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, and the compulsive complex of rules and regulations of religion. Christ is all, or he is not at all. He alone can save us. And for the religious leaders of that time, religious pride and self-justifying defensiveness had become a substitute for God and a personal relationship with him. And the same is true today. Perhaps the greatest challenge of our time is to introduce religious people to Christ and a saving experience of his love. Verse 13 to 22. When they saw the confidence of Peter and John and grasped the fact that they were uneducated and untrained people, they were amazed. Then they fully realized that they had been with Jesus. And as they could see the person who had been healed standing with them, they couldn't contradict it. But after they had ordered them to wait outside the council, they conferred with each other. They said, what are we going to do to these people? It's quite obvious to everyone who lives in Jerusalem that an obvious miraculous sign has been done through them. We can't deny it. Let's threaten them severely so that it doesn't spread any further among the people. And from now on, they won't speak to any other person about this name. And they summoned them and ordered them not to utter a word about it or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than we listen to God, decide what you like. As for us, we're not able to avoid speaking about the things which we saw and heard. So after they had given them a further warning, they let them go. They couldn't find any way to punish them, because the people were praising God for what had happened. In fact, the person on whom this miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over 40 years old. The Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were laymen. They marveled at what they were able to say and do and realized they had been with Jesus. What a remarkable compliment. The apostles had the layman as evidence that Christ has, had used them as agents of healing. 
And yet the greatest miracle is in the conversion and transformation of a person with whom we have shared the love of Christ. When we give ourselves away in caring relationships and encouragement to those who do not know Christ, he uses us to introduce them to him. People will live forever because of the Lord's ministry to them through us. Peter and John had decided whether to be obedient to God or to the Sanhedrin. And pressure comes in our lives when we are evasive and try to please everyone. The Lord wants to amaze us so that we can amaze the world. Wherever we are in our growth in Christ, there's a next step to take. We all have problems that ache for solutions. Difficult people populate everyone's life. Some of us need healing. And the Lord is going to break through. He will meet our needs beyond our wildest expectations. And so that our gratitude, also, our, also that our gratitude can be expressed by speaking the things which we have seen and heard. Verses 23 to 31. When Peter and John had been released, they went back to their own company and reported everything that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard it, they raised their voices to God in unity and said, Master, it was you who made the sky and earth and the sea and everything in them. It was you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor, your servant David, why were the nations insolent? Why did the people plan futile schemes? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers joined forces for the very same purpose against the Lord and his anointed one. It was true, all right, that both Herod and Pontius Pilate joined forces with the non-Jews and the people of Israel to plot against your holy son Jesus, whom you anointed. They did whatever your power and your plan decided beforehand. And about what's happening now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your slave servants that they will speak out your word with the right of freedom of speech and boldly, openly, in public. Also that they will use your power to heal. And also that miraculous signs and wonders will be done through the name of your holy child, Jesus. After they put earnest request, the place where they were assembled was shaken strongly. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and kept speaking out the word of God with the right of freedom of speech, speaking boldly and openly in public. We're amazed at the response of the church to Peter and John's report of the threats of the Sanhedrin. They had narrowly escaped imprisonment and physical punishment, even death, if the chief priests could have found a way. The church did not respond with fear, anxiety, or a desire for safety. Instead, they went to prayer. In their prayer for sustained boldness, 
there are four convictions expressed. Number one, the absolute sovereignty of God. The faith of the church was that the Lord was in charge of all things. He was creator and sustainer of all. Nothing happens without his knowledge. And he can use all things for his purposes and glory. Number two, opposition and threats. What they had endured had happened to the Lord's people throughout the ages. They could not put their trust in people. Their experience was not unlike that of David long before. And the church was in good company. God's faithful people have always been in trouble. It was a conclusive test that they were obeying God rather than men. We have to wonder if Jesus' words about persecution stirred within them as they prayed. Jesus had called persecution for righteousness' sake blessed. Number three, the assurance of God's overruling. We can take anything if we know that God is in charge and will intervene. God had allowed the cross for the sins of the world and followed it with the victory of the resurrection. And that is why the church could pray. It was true, all right, that both Herod and Pontius Pilate joined forces with the non-Jews and the people of Israel to plot against your holy son Jesus, whom you anointed. They did whatever your power and your plan decided beforehand. Jesus was not alone. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The central source of the courage of the early church was that if God could overrule the worst that mankind had done and give his best, he could use anything that had happened to them. He is able to bring good out of evil. There's a purpose for everything if we trust in him. We can never drift beyond his intervening if we trust him. Number four, the final conviction of the church's prayer was that God would confirm the witness of the church with a continuation of signs and wonders. They expected miracles to attend their preaching. That's why they prayed for more boldness and more manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power for further visible proof that God had heard their prayers for courage. They prayed for the Lord to continue the healings, which had caused so much dismay and trouble. The spectacular events that spreads across the pages of the whole book of Acts can all be traced back to praying like this. The Lord's answer to the prayer of the church, the room where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and kept speaking out the word of God with the right of freedom of speech, speaking boldly and openly in public. I think we need to picture ourselves as bold people. How would we act? What would we say? What would we dare? Perhaps it's an act of love, which we've been resisting doing, or an opportunity to share our faith 
which has been neglected because of being embarrassed or timid. Most of all, it's following the Lord's guidance with faithfulness and obedience, regardless of the cost. He is faithful. He will give us power to act and speak with boldness. The courage the disciples displayed beyond the fellowship was dependent on the quality of life they experienced in that fellowship. Luke tells us about an essential ingredient of a great church, an unlimited commitment to Christ and to each other, which is expressed in unrestrained loyalty, not only to the Lord, but to one another. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, a legalist might read this backwards. You will keep my commandments if you love me. In other words, you must prove your love for Christ by obeying him. But the one who is walking in grace reads it just as Jesus said it. The one walking in grace understands that obedience is a byproduct of knowing Christ's love. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So how does the Father love the Son? Unconditionally. Before Jesus had done a blessed thing, God said, This is my beloved Son. Do you see how my Father loves me, says Jesus? That's how I love you. Jesus is proclaiming his unconditional love for us. We don't obey to earn his love. We already have it. Or his forgiveness in Christ is already ours. We obey our Heavenly Father because we know he is good and he loves us and he wants the best for us. In John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So if we need a command to follow or something to do for Jesus, then do what he says here. Love each other. Jesus is not giving us law that must be obeyed, nor is he saying, love each other to prove you love me. He is saying our love for others can only ever be a response to his love for us. He leads, we follow. He gives, we receive. And only then can we give what we receive. So is God's love unconditional? It must be. Otherwise, it's not love. There are no ifs, buts, and maybes when it comes to love. But one may say, well, wait a minute, unconditional love's not in the Bible. Sure it is. It's in plenty of places. In Scripture, the love of God is captured in the noun agape. God is a source and definition of agape love. According to that well-known chapter that we read at weddings, agape love is patient, kind, and not self-seeking. It is not easily angered and keeps no records of wrongs. Agape love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape love never fails. 
Sounds like true love to me. In the New Testament, two verbs are used to describe the manner in which God loves us. Excuse my Greek. I'll try and pronounce them the right way. The first verb, agapeo, means to be well pleased or found fond of or contented with. It is the unconditional love God the Father has for his son, for the whole world, and for his children. Which means God's love, God loves us the same way that he loves Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 23. I with them and you with me. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world will realize that you have sent me and love them in the same way that you have loved me. The second verb, filial, means fondness or affection. It is the affection that God the Father has for the Son, Jesus, and the disciples. It's the friendship Jesus had with his good friend Lazarus and even the wretched Laodiceans. The love of God is also captured in the adjective agapetos, which is usually translated as beloved. The word means dearly loved, esteemed, favorite, and worthy of love. This word beloved captures God's heart for us. Our Heavenly Father is fond of each one of us. We are his esteemed favorite, and he is well pleased with us. He looks at us with a feeling of deep contentment, knowing that we are his deeply loved child. Now, man-made religion portrays God as unpredictable and his love as variable. Sometimes he loves us, sometimes he doesn't. But the gospel of grace declares God's love for us is constant and everlasting. Religion prostitutes the love of God by putting price tags on his affection. We have to earn God's favor. But the gospel of grace declares that God loved us while we were sinners, and nothing can separate us from his love. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Religion demands that we impress God with the passion of our love, but the gospel of grace inspires us 
to trust in our Heavenly Father who loves us without limit. Everything that is good about the good news is good and true because our Heavenly Father loves us. He always has and he always will. God never changes. So how do we know God loves us unconditionally? The cross is the proof. In what is considered as the world's most popular sermon, Derek Prince, in his sermon, The Divine Exchange, says this. What happened on the cross was a divinely ordained exchange. All the evil due to our rebellion met together upon Jesus, that all the good due to the sinless obedience of Jesus might be available to us. And what does this mean? Well, this is the message of the cross. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance with the Father. Jesus was cut off by death that we might be joined to God eternally. Our old being was put to death in him that the new being might come to life in us. Jesus knew the name of every soldier who beat him, every person who mocked him, and every Pharisee who thought he was the devil. Yet he still went to the cross so that they might be reconciled to God. The wonder of the cross reveals God's unconditional love for us. God did not wait for us to repent or get cleaned up before he loved us. While we were in the filth of our sin and self-righteousness, he came and embraced us on the cross. God will never, never make us jump through hoops to earn his love. He won't love us anymore if we succeed, and he won't love us any less if we fail. If we lead millions to Christ, or none at all, he will love us just the same. There is nothing we can do to make him love us more, and nothing we can do to make him love us less. His love endures forever. As we receive the love of our Father, we find that we cannot hold it in. We have to share it with others. And this is what our scripture reading this morning is all about. Peter and John went out with the love of Jesus to preach the love of Jesus so that others would know the love of Jesus and be filled with the knowledge that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So as we continue with our study on the book of Acts over the next months, perhaps this is a lesson that we can learn to live by. Let your love for God change the world, but never let the world change your love for God. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is about Jesus, your son. 
We thank you that he dwells in each and every one who confesses by faith, repents from their sins, and turns to the Savior. We thank you, Lord, that we can make this act of repentance a daily affair because we daily need that cleansing. And so, Lord, as we go from this place, may our hearts be renewed. May our our lives be encouraged. And may you shine the more brightly that when the earthquakes come, we will be filled of your Holy Spirit and speak the word with boldness. And we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>